0: Good morning once again, and for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet, my name is John, and I'm the pastor here, and I'm very glad to have you with us today, whether you've been here a hundred times before or whether this is your first time with us today. And I got to tell you, this is a great weekend because it is not 99 degrees outside anymore. That's right. In celebration of that, I wore my jacket today, not counting on the fact that you sing so loud and you filled this entire room with hot air, and so now it's 99 degrees in here. So congratulations on that. You, yeah, thank you. Uh, but I'm so glad that you're here today, and I'm so glad that you're so engaged and excited about what's going to happen. We're in a series called Pair O Bulls, which, admittedly cheesy, admittedly a little dad jokey. Okay, I get it. I created it. I'm a dad. It's cool. All right, so we're calling it pair of bulls. This is a teaching style that Jesus used where he would tell a story that had an underlying meaning. And the purpose of the story was actually so that the people listening who wanted to hear what he was saying would understand. And the people who were listening, trying to criticize him, wouldn't understand. It was almost like a little bit of a a code. But all the parables are about the clashing of these two kingdoms. That's why you got that visual of the two bulls locking horns in this series. Jesus spent most of his ministry trying to explain how the kingdom that he was going to rule over was fundamentally different than the kingdom that everybody else was used to. And we believe as Christians that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross for our sins, but he was resurrected and then 40 days later returned to heaven and he's waiting to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to establish a kingdom here where he's going to rule. He's going to be in charge and all of us are going to be a part of that in one way or another. Those of us that have put our faith in him. And we are waiting for that day to happen. But when it happens and Jesus is in charge, things are going to be real different, (laughs) really different than they are now. And Jesus used the parables to explain how it was going to be different. So we've been going through and we've been talking about a different parable every single week. And we got a great one today. The parable that we talk about today, I am willing to bet most of you will be familiar with, whether you've ever stepped foot in a church or not, you'll be familiar with this concept. And I'm not going to spoil it yet. We're going to get there. Let me first ask you this question, because this is the concept that Jesus is going to be getting at. Let me ask you this question. Are all people, are all people of equal value? What do you think? Are all people of equal value? Yes. Yes, I think so too. And I'm thankful that is a concept that is built into the very foundation of our country. You look at the Declaration of Independence, it's basically the first thing anybody said. Right? They said, We hold these truths to be self-evident. This is This is beyond reproach. This is clear. Anybody can see it. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and all women are created better. It should have, it wasn't there. It should have been there. But all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, right? It's right there in our founding documents. All men are created equal. Let me ask this question, because I agree. I believe that all people are, are equal, have equal value, right? Let me ask you this, though. If all men are of equal value, why don't we actually value people equally? It's, it's, it's a fundamental truth that we hold in our head, but it is not a practical truth that we live out. In, in practice, we treat people with different value or we think about people with different levels of value. And you say, well, not me. Let, me. let me give you a few examples. And I want you to think about how you value the people I'm about to describe. These are all people or examples of people that I interacted with this week, right? Okay. A 45-year-old man who has absolutely no desire to work whatsoever. He lives at home with his retired, elderly, very, very sick parents, And he survives off of fraudulently collected disability and his parents' retirement checks. And he stands in the government building. You you see him standing in the government building, yelling at the clerk behind the desk, demanding his parents' social security checks so he can go cash them and use them for himself. Let me ask you a question. How highly do you value that person? Functionally, I mean, how do you think about them? Well, what about, what about a political activist who you see on TV? She's on, a, she's on a, a, a news program and she sits on CNN and she's arguing for a position that you think strips you of your rights and you think is morally reprehensible. Every single word out of her mouth infuriates you more and more. And just the fact that she gets to be on that program and influence millions of people with that idea, that concept, and they're going to agree with her, just burns you up from the inside out how much value do you give her? Very little, right? A middle-aged woman who struggles with mental illness and she didn't know what to do to help provide for herself other than start turning tricks. She's weathered by life. You regularly see her walking around downtown wearing very, well, too little. She's trying to drum up business. And this week you drive down the street and you see her standing on the street corner shouting profanities at all the cars that are driving by for no reason. How much value do you give her? A wealthy businessman, he comes from money. He's always had money. He will always have money. He doesn't care who he steps on as long as his profits are good. He thinks he lives above the law. He thinks he he can do anything he wants and get away with it because of who he knows and how much money he has. And when he looks at people who don't have as much as him, disgusted by them, because he thinks the only reason that they aren't in the position he's in is because they're lazy. They're lazy and they're not willing to work hard. And so he doesn't care if he takes advantage of them. If he takes advantage of someone for his own profit, that's their own fault for being a sucker. All he cares about is power and money. How much value do you give him? One last example, Tom Brady. (laughs) I had you right till that, right? (laughs) Why, when in our head we say all people are of equal value, do we treat people and think about people as if they have different levels of value? (laughs) That's not what we want, is it? Based on what we said at the beginning, I don't think that's what we want. Although we believe that all men are created equal, in theory, in reality, we believe that people earn or lose value based on their behavior. Based on how closely their lifestyle matches our lifestyle and what we think is acceptable. And so we walk through life ascribing value to people and determining what that means. And every one of us does that differently based on who we are and what our experience is. And unfortunately, what it is, it is an exercise in dehumanization. Because if I look at somebody who doesn't believe the same thing I believe, doesn't think the same way that I think, doesn't live the same way that I live, doesn't have the same decision-making, doesn't hold the same faith that I do, if I look at them and I can devalue them enough, I end up dehumanizing them and I don't have to care about them. Jesus spent a huge part of his ministry trying to crush this idea. Because particularly the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, that was their role. The Pharisees would walk around with their noses in the air, claiming that they loved God and they loved people, which were the greatest commandments in the law, that they they loved God and they loved other people, but they looked down their nose at people that were not valuable to them. And they criticized Jesus over and over and over again because Jesus spent time with people they didn't think he should be spending time with. He gave people access to himself that they didn't think should have access to him. They felt like Jesus was above these people and they had a real problem with it. The way this world works is that we, we determine how valuable someone is based on their lifestyle and based on their behavior. But let me say for myself, I don't want to live that way. I do, and I struggle with it, but I don't want to live that way. And for any of you that would say, I don't want to live that way either, let me give you hope. Because a kingdom is coming where that will not be the case. Where people will not be valued based on their contribution. They will be valued by something much better and much greater. And Jesus is going to tell us a story today that's going to explain what that's based on. Now, to get into the story, let's get, a little bit of, let's get a little bit of context. We're going to Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Luke 14, you can start turning there now. That's in the New Testament. It's going to be three quarters or so of the way through your Bible, if you're new to the Bible. And then also you can pull up an app on your phone, the YouVersion Bible app, and you can actually find our service there so you can read along. But in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is invited to a party. He got invited to a lot of parties, which which is why I know Jesus isn't the boring guy most people make him out to be. You don't get invited to parties when you're boring. You get invited to parties when you're fun. And so Jesus was fun. He got invited to a party. It was the Sabbath. And basically they were getting together for dinner after going to the temple. So a lot of you today, when you're done with church, in fact, you're already thinking about it even now, when you're done with church today, you're gonna pile into a car with your family or with some other people, and you're gonna go to lunch. Right? Where are you going, DJs? Where are y'all going this week? You got a whole crew. Have you decided yet? Every week, it's a whole conversation. I listen to you having it. Where are you going to go to lunch? And usually, usually it's DJs, right? Because they got something for everybody, right? Yeah, for the kids and everybody, right? So you you go to lunch. That's what they were getting together for lunch at, at a person's house, and um, everybody's taking their place at the table, it, and everybody is assembling themselves at the table based on how they f- feel they are valued in the group. So the people who think they're the most valuable in the group are sitting up by the head of the table. And the people who think they're the least valuable in the group are sitting down by the bottom of the table. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 this is a bad idea. Okay? First of all, you're setting yourself up for a little bit of embarrassment. Because if you take a seat up near the, up near the, the head of the table, thinking that's where you belong, and somebody more important than you comes in, they're going to be like, excuse me. Hey, Jimmy, I'm just going to pick on you since I've been picking on you. Jimmy, hey, I love you, man, but this guy, he needs to be right where, you know, where you are. So if you don't mind just scoochie-scooching for me, you just slide on down to the end of the table. And Jesus is like, don't be embarrassed by that. <laughs> you know, don't, don't do that. That's a bad, it's a bad scenario. He said, instead, when you come in, why don't you sit at the, at, the, at the foot of the table? And that way, maybe the host comes to you and says, hey, Jimmy, why don't you come up here and sit by me? Right? That's a much better situation. But he's got... But they, they try to trick him as he's at this dinner party and he's doing that teaching. Now they try to trick him and they bring him a man who has a disease and it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They bring him a man with dropsy. Dropsy is a, is a, a, a disease with a, of edema. It's where fluid builds up in certain parts of your body. Um, something my mom has struggled with for years and years in her ankles. It's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult disease. And this guy probably had it to an extreme level and they brought him and they said, what do you think, Jesus? Are you gonna heal him? You know, they're trying to trick him. Are you going to heal him or are you not going to heal him? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to heal him. <laughs> all right. It doesn't matter to me uh, whether it's the Sabbath or not. And it's getting him riled up because he shouldn't be taking time with these people. He shouldn't be doing these things. He shouldn't be spending time with them. And he tells him the story of a wedding feast. And in the wedding, at the wedding feast, there's a guy who's had, throwing a big, big party and he invites all the important people in town. And uh, when he finally sends out the the messengers to say, hey, it's time for the party, we're ready, come on, you know, let's go. Um, All of them start making excuses on why they can't come to the party. Uh, One of them says, "Uh, you know, I just bought a field and I got to go see it. And then the next guy's like, well, I just bought some oxen. I got to go test them out. It's a little bit of a humble brag. Am I right? Oh, you know, I would come, but I uh, just bought some property. It's pretty sweet. It's got a mountain view. I'm just going to go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go kind of stand up there and look around. So beautiful. I'd rather do that than come to your party. That's for sure. Because my land is so important. The second guy just bought some oxen. He's got to test it out. He's like, I just bought a new Lamborghini, friend. That thing ain't going to drive itself. All right. I would do donuts in it, but it's four wheel drive. So I'm just going to have to go straight off the line with it. All right. They're too busy to come. And then the third person, I think their excuse is the best one. The third one says, still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) I think that's the best that's the best excuse I wonder a little if Jesus just chuckled a little bit I don't know I don't know I married a wife and therefore I cannot come they basically said we all have better things to do than to come to your party with you and so uh, the, the master says just go out and first of all go into town and find anybody in town that'll come to I don't care who they are you just go find them and get them in here and, and they went and found as many as they could, and they came in, and, and the, uh, the, the party still wasn't full. They still didn't have enough people for it to be a real, you know, rager. So they said, why don't you go out to the highways and the byways and compel them to come in? And so they go out further outside of town to bring people in. And Jesus is clearly teaching here that the the religious leaders, the Pharisees thought themselves too good for him. He calls himself the stone that the builders rejected. It's actually back from uh, prophecy from Psalms. We talked about that last week. They're too good to come. And so instead he invites all in. He invites in the humble and the lame and the hurt and the destitute and the outcast and the people that the Pharisees were turning their noses up to. And I believe, that, I believe in that, that particular story, the picture of finding people in town and then going outside of town is a picture of, go to the Jews who are marginalized by these Pharisees and bring them into my family and then go out to the Gentiles outside of the Jewish nation and bring them in to my family. So Jesus, is he's, he's he got this pattern, this rhythm, going right now, where he's trying to show them that the people that they don't think are valuable actually are. And then he says, listen, if any of you wants to follow me, he has to first hate his mother and brother before he follows me, which sounds extreme, but Jesus is about the king of extreme statements. He makes, uh, uh, he, we, the word we would call it is hyperbole, exaggerations, important, uh, exaggerations on purpose. What he's saying is, listen, you have to give up whatever it is, you have to be willing to give up whatever it is that you hold dear if you're going to follow me. Like if it comes down to you having to choose between me and your mother and father, you need to be willing to choose me over them. By comparison, he said, he tells this famous story where he says, which of you, if you were building a tower, would not first sit down and count the cost? Otherwise you'll get halfway up and you'll be unable to finish. But first you have to count the cost before you build the tower. And he says, and also, what if, what if you were a, a, a king that was going off to war? Wouldn't you first look at how many troops they have and how many troops you have to make sure that you, you could actually win the thing, you know? What Jesus is saying with these stories is, if you're going to follow me, if you really want to be like me, if you really want to give it all, you, you have to be willing. You got to know what it might cost you. And be willing to do that. And the reason I believe he's saying that with the Pharisees present is because the Pharisees were not willing to pay the price to follow him. You know, that the, the verse, the one verse, um, Man, the 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 one where he's talking about uh, if which one of you, if you were going to build a tower, would not first count the cost, unless he get halfway up and be unable to finish, and everybody would mock him and say, "This man began to build and he was unable to finish." Um, that gets used all the time, like way out of context. <laughs> I have every time I think every time I've ever heard somebody do a, a message on biblical stewardship or money management, they've used that verse. It has no, nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. All right. Yes, Jesus is just saying. Jesus is just reiterating what any common sense would tell you is that if you set out to accomplish a plan, you need a plan to accomplish it. That's all he's saying. What he's trying to get at is he's, he's putting it to him and saying, are you willing to give up what you need to give up? And that is something very specific for the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are looking back at him. Are you willing to pay the price? For them, the price was their own self-importance. It was their own sense of value in themselves that had been generated and created by their own behavior. Are you willing to give up that sense of self-importance? And then Jesus said, well, my goodness, if salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? It's just going to be tossed out. And after he says that, we're going to move into chapter 15 and get to our story. Luke chapter 15, this is where it's coming to a head. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, to hear him. Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're accusing him of this, as if it's beneath him. And he proceeds to tell three stories. The first one is about a shepherd, and that shepherd has a hundred sheep. And he discovers at some point that one of the sheep has gone missing. And Jesus says, don't you think, he puts the question to everyone who's listening. Don't you think that if the shepherd loses that one sheep, he would leave the 99 where they are. And he would go out into the wilderness to find that lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, would return back celebrating and excited because the lost sheep was found. And they're all nodding their heads. Yes, of course he would. Jesus said, what about a woman who has 10 silver coins? And one of them gets lost. What do you think she's going to do? Of course, she's going to turn the whole house upside down. She'll be moving the couch. She'll be looking inside of the cushions because that's where it probably is. Somewhere down, like in the recesses of the couch, she will look way down below in the back where the springs are sticking out and might cut you. And you're working, you find Legos and crayons. And eventually she's going to find that coin. And when she finally finds the coin, she's going to go to all the neighbors and say, I found the coin. Can you believe I found the coin? And then he tells another story, very famously. That's the one we're going to read today. Luke chapter 15, starting in 11, verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, in that culture, you would have had to wait until... The father passed away in order to get the inheritance, but the younger son came and said, dad, I want it now, which was a tremendous insult, tremendous insult. It was like, sons didn't do this. And it's like the son going to the father and saying, dad, you're dead to me. I don't care. I don't want to be here anymore. I want out of this house. I want out of this situation. So just give me what's coming to me and I'll be out of your hair. It was incredibly disrespectful to the father. Not only disrespectful to the father, but also disrespectful to the other brother. All right? Because it's, we read, so he divided to them his livelihood. We don't see him arguing about it. He just does it. And when he does this, he actually has to give the son his portion, and he has to give the, or the younger son his portion, and he has to give the older son his portion at the same time. The older son stays. Verse 13 And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Prodigal means wasteful or careless, reckless. And um, so you may know this story as the parable of the prodigal son. That's the way it often gets said. Um, In many Bibles, it's listed as the parable of the lost son, because you have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, and that just sounds good when you're looking at the headings. It makes sense. All right, so he goes and he wastes it all, verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. Yeah, he became a a servant or a slave to them, okay? He, He entered into a contract with them, went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. Telling you, this is absolute rock bottom for him. Not only to be doing this lowly job and to have no more money to his name and no prospect of money in the future because he's already gotten his inheritance. But for a young Jewish man to be tending pigs was the worst of the worst because pigs are unclean. So he was at Jesus's... Jesus picked swine on purpose so that everyone would understand what he was saying. This guy is absolutely at the bottom of society. If there's a a totem pole, he's on the ground. If there's a ladder, he's on the first rung. He doesn't deserve anything. He doesn't deserve any acclaim. He doesn't deserve any forgiveness. He doesn't deserve anything from anyone. He has wasted it all, and he's burned all of his bridges, and all he's left with is pig food. Yet. Verse 17, when he came to himself, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I want you to imagine for a second how hard this was gonna be for him. Have you ever found yourself at a place of desperation where you know you've messed up, you know you've hurt someone, you know, in fact, some of you may have said that I know there was a time when I sat at rock bottom. How hard was it for you when you found yourself there to put on enough humility to go to the person that you hurt, the person that you betrayed, and ask forgiveness? I can't even imagine the courage it took him to overcome his own pride and his own fears, his own hesitations to go back to his father. Yet he looks and he sees, I have no choice. And he arose and came to his father. Now, before we read it, what should the father do? Let me put it this way. What would we expect the father to do? We would expect him to meet him at the door and go, no, you said I was no longer your father. You are no longer my son. I already gave you your inheritance and you wasted it. You made your bed. You go lay in it. That's what most of us, maybe I should just speak for me. That's what I would probably do. Send him packing. That's not what the father does. Still in verse 20. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to the father, father, this is a pre-rehearsed speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, "Bring out the best robe and put it on him." And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. I mean it, it represented restoration, and that was the family ring he was putting on his, saying, "You are my son, and you are home." Sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Fire up the grill, make some steaks. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And they all lived happily ever after. Or not his son, he said his son was dead. His son wasn't really dead, but their relationship was. But now it's alive. That's not the end of the story. In verse 25, we see what, frankly, Jesus is really getting at. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has, filled, has killed the fatted calf. Now, how do we expect him to respond? We should be happy, right? Should be happy his brother's back. This is my brother, right? We're bros. Well, he's not happy at all. He's not happy at all. Verse 28. But he was angry and would not go in. I mean, he stood outside with his arms crossed. Ain't going in there. No, sir. Not for him. Trash. Come in here and take disrespect dad that way. Disrespect. Leave me to do all of the work. He runs off and does what he does. Uh-uh. Not me. I'm staying out here. You guys can have a party if you want, but I'm staying out here. Sulking. In the corner. Sulking therefore his father came out and pleaded with him, pleaded with him to come into the party. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. He said, you killed the fatted calf. You never even gave me a goat, man. Couldn't even have goat wings. (laughs) Are goat wings a thing? Probably not. Just buffaloes. Just buffalo wings. Wings from the buffalo. Yeah. But as soon as, the, the older son continues, but as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father looks back, and the father looks back at him and says, son, you're, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours is right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. So Jesus tells story after story like this because he is trying to beat something into their thick skulls. And he's trying to beat something into our thick skulls. And it's this. My value is not defined by my worldly behavior. My value is definite in my heavenly father. The younger son's value to the father was not based on what he did or didn't do. And the older son's value was not to the father was not based on what he did or didn't do. It was based on the fact that they were both sons. When, when the father expresses his joy and his excitement over the lost son coming home, he doesn't say a word about what the son did. He just says that his son is home, was lost and is found, was dead and is alive. And when the other brother comes and says, how could you take him back based on what he's done? Look at what I've done. The father doesn't say anything about what the older son has done or about what the younger son done. He says, my son, you are my son and you are always here with me and everything I have is yours. It is all based on the relationship, not based on their performance. We call this parable the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. It's not about one son. It's about two sons. And more than being about two sons, it's about the father. I would rather, you know, you read through your Bible and the, and the translators put headings on sections. And they call this and that and the other thing. I just wish I just wish this one wasn't called the parable of the lost son or the parable of the found son or the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the indignant brother or the parable of the faithful brother. I just wish we would call this one the parable of the loving father. Because I want you to know that when God looks at you and when God looks at each and every one of those people we listed earlier that we may look at and devalue for one reason or another, when God looks at them, he loves them. When God looks at you, he loves you. And when, when, when the shepherd lost the sheep, all he could think about was getting the lost sheep back. When the woman lost the coin, all she could think about, she couldn't think about anything else until she got that coin back. And as the father sees this lost son coming home, he sees him from a long way off and he runs to meet him rather than making him come to his doorstep. And while, I would say this, while the older son is not of greater value than the younger son, the younger son was absolutely of greater concern than the older son. Now, when you hear the story, I would imagine that you, like me, identify with one of these sons more than the other. Maybe, Maybe you identify most with the son who stayed. Because you look back across your life and you say, you think about your relationship with God and you say, yeah, I feel like over the long haul, I've been pretty faithful to God. I feel like I stayed home. I feel like I've worked hard. I feel like I've made decisions to do things that other people don't do or to not do things other people don't do because I want to be faithful to God. I feel like I've made sacrifices for him. I feel like I've served him. I feel like I've carried the load. And it's frustrating oftentimes when you feel like you have been faithful over the long haul to see people who are squandering their life, who have wasted their life, who have run, run and done all of these other things, and what? They just get to be forgiven? They don't have to, like, they don't have to make up for what they did? They don't have to to pay it back in any way. To someone who has been faithful their entire life, that can begin to feel very frustrating. Because You say, well, if they can just ask forgiveness and get forgiveness after doing all that, why am I working so hard to be good? And we can get indignant and frustrated and miss out. See, the the great tragedy of being the, the, the older son is that you miss out on the joy that the father has for the son returning home that you end up frustrated, stewing, standing in the corner, having a pity party, instead of being excited about what God is doing and knowing that you are walking your course and they are walking theirs. So maybe you recognize or identify more with the second son. And what I want you to hear today, if you do, is that God loves the lost son and daughter. And and, and he looks at you the same way that he would look at the older son and say, listen, you will always be with me. And all that I have is yours. You're earning reward and you have an inheritance, okay? But would you please just celebrate with me because I'm so happy they're home. And I feel like there are way too many Christians, there are way too many churches that find themselves on that side of the equation. And because of that, they're afraid to get into the mess. They're, They're afraid to deal with people who are difficult to deal with, that are coming from rock bottom and running back home. And they want them to get, get, get fixed quickly, immediately. Why is it taking them so long to get things straight? And it's that it's an indignation that exists. And so if you find yourself in that position, I want you to know that God loves you and that you will be with him and that all that he has is yours. But you need to join the party for those that are running home, no matter how you feel about them. Maybe you identify more with the son who left. You're hurt. You're broken. You're afraid. You want to come back to God. Now, I want to, I want to be clear about something in the scripture. In each one of these stories that Jesus tells, the, the, the key person initially possesses the thing. Okay, so the shepherd already had the sheep. The woman already had the coin. The father already had the son. And so I don't believe when Jesus is telling these stories, he's talking about salvation. I don't think he's talking about how you get saved. I think he's talking about his children, people that have already put their faith in Jesus Christ and are a child of God. And some that make the decision to be faithful and stay, but some that make the decision to leave and live a prodigal life. And so maybe you know, maybe you put your faith in Christ recently or maybe years ago but you know you are not living the way you're supposed to live you are not doing the things that are honoring to God and you feel like you're disconnected from God and in some ways you're afraid to confess that to him because you don't know how he will react let me make you a guarantee I know how he will react if you come back to God and you say I'm sorry will you please forgive me he will forgive you every single time If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to know that if you would say that I identify with that second son, God is extremely concerned about you because he loves you. And he will leave the sheep in the fold to come find you. And he he will risk cutting his hand on the spring in the couch to find you. And when you turn to him and you decide that you want to come back into relationship with him and to be close with him, he will receive you with open arms. He will run to you. All you have to do is say, I want to come home. And we need to learn how to live in a world where our value is not based on our behavior, but our sense of value for ourselves and the value that we give to other people. Is based in the fact that they are a child of God and a creation of God, and that alone. And that every single life, every single person, is valuable regardless of their choices and regardless of their decisions. And the people that you may be frustrated with the most, are actually the people that God is most concerned about. And we need to learn to bring our level of concern for them to the same level as His. That is not the way the world thinks but it is the way that Christ thinks. And so it's the way we should think. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and express our love for you. Not because of what you've done, although you've done the unthinkable for us. Our love for you is because of who you are. Because you are loving and because you are merciful and because you are just and because you are kind and because you are patient. And because you are who you are, you allow us to see what you've created us to be. And you made it possible for us to be in a relationship with you, although our sin has separated us from you. You sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for that sin. And he rose again on the third day. And we know that if we put our faith in you, we believe in Jesus Christ, then he pays that he has paid for our sin, that we become your child simply by believing in you. And I ask God that you would help us. You would help us not to try and find our value in anything else. And that you would help us not to ascribe value to other people for any other reason. But to be able to look at the people that have made maybe the worst decisions we can imagine. And understand that they are of the greatest concern to you. And that they should be of the greatest concern to us. That we would learn to li- look not with criticism, not with judgment on them. But just as Jesus, you, you, you chose this word, you said the father looked at the son running home with compassion. And may we respond to people with the same grace with which you've responded to us. Help our, help our hearts to heal from this, this pride. Spirit, help direct us and guide us. Maybe there's someone in our life, God, that you're, you're bringing to our mind, putting on our heart right now, who we've judged that we we don't deem worthy of forgiveness. And maybe right now, convict us. Convict us, God, that we need to focus not on their punishment, but on their healing. How we can learn to look at them the same way you look at them. As we remember that we're not deserving of your forgiveness. We've not earned grace. But you gave it to us freely because you loved us and you waited for us. And we are forever thankful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.